Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where writers sit around drinking tasty beverages and talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. There will be rants and raves and opinions that may not agree but are lovingly delivered. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Today's peanut gallery includes John Schmidt and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 165, interview with Delilah Dawson. Welcome, Delilah. Thank you. Nice to be here. I, I want to start by fangirl squeeing just a little bit if, if you can stand somebody telling you how much they love you. I, I can probably find a way to deal with okay, that. Okay, yeah. well, brace yourself because <laughs> I first, I did not understand the connection at first. I bought Lila Bowen's book, Wake of Vultures, and I loved oh, yeah. it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and then later I found your Kill the Farm Boy, which I bought because I was the biggest uh, Wesley fan in the whole wide world. So anybody who loves... Uh, the whole Princess Bride. Like, is it like that? Kill the farm boy? That was such an interesting twist that you had, who it was about. And that's all I'm going to say because I don't want to spoil it for others, but you must read this book. <laughs> you did a couple more. Are those all with Kevin Hearn? Kill the farm boy, No Country for Old Gnomes, The Princess Beard? Yep. Ah, The Tales of Pell. Everybody needs to run out and put it on their Kindle. Or especially, may I recommend Audible? Who is the who is the person who did your Audible? Because the voice for Kill the Farm Boy was fantastic. That is Luke Daniels. He also does all of Kevin's Iron Druid and Seven Kenning series, but he basically acts out the whole thing with voices. It's it's incredible. He's so talented. He does. It was the acting about, I mean, from the difference between the goat to the girls to the the evil enchanter. And especially the goat, because I'm in love with the goat. Oh, yeah, man. The first time we heard him go, y'all are weird. It was like it was the best. We had no idea what it was going to sound like, but it was perfect. And you're a little bit in love. And I, I just, I have to start by skewing with your shadow series that you wrote under the name of Lila Bowen. Now, why do you, why do you have two different pen names? Everybody's got a different reason. Sure. So um, up until that point, everything I'd written was with different imprints of Simon & Schuster. My first series was called The Blood Series. It started with Wicked As They Come and is a steampunk vampire romance. So those were all with Simon Pulse. Then I sold uh, several young adult books to Pocket. My first The Blood Series was Pocket. And then Simon Pulse was uh, Simon & Schuster's YA imprint that did Servants of the Storm Hit and Strike. So I was all over with Simon & Schuster. And then I sold The Shadow Series with Wake of Vultures to Orbit, a completely different publisher. And at that time, I was still kind of relatively new. That was in the first two or three years of my career. And so sometimes if you write something radically different, they'll try to go with the pen name because Orbit didn't really want to have my advertising dollars go in to feed Simon & Schuster. Understood. Um, and also it was okay. very different in tone. You know, you've got kind of vampire sexy times and then YA romance demons. And then suddenly you've got these hard talking, weird Western very violent people. So it, it kind of worked, but I'd always figured I wanted to write so many different genres. I always assumed I'd have a pen name and I had kind of like a couple in my pocket. So I was happy <laughs> to do it. And we considered it an open pen name. It was never really meant to be a secret, uh, you, but you get a little bit of a debut right. boost sometimes when you write under a pen name. So yeah. I hadn't thought about the different publishers angle. They, I don't, I think you're the first person who's really mentioned it that way. Not just saying like, we understand that Ursula Vernon writes as T. Kingfisher when it's adult and scary versus kids cute and cuddly. Yeah. But <laughs> Any dragon broth is not going to be scary. Kate Elliott. Also Kate Elliott. Yeah. Yes. But anyway, um, I'm surprised you don't have more pen names because you've written so wonderfully, so fluently in so many different genres. 
you know, I've offered anytime I do something radically different. I'm, I tell them like, if y'all want a pen name, like that's fine. But I guess my name has gathered enough, you know, once I hit the New York Times bestseller list, they can put that on the front of the book. So they haven't really wanted to, uh, to go with anything else. Well, it's, you become the weight of your own brand, which is fantastic. Go you. It is, but it's also difficult because I write in so many different genres and tones that I don't really have that that kind of core base. Like when you want a Stephen King book, you know you want a Stephen King book. When you want a Nora Roberts book, you want a Nora Roberts book. If you want a Delilah book, you got like 10 different directions you could go in. It's a, it's like a CeCe's buffet. You don't know what you're going to get. Well, I, I love that. I, I want to go out on a limb here because I've read in three of your different areas. I have read Wicked As They Come and your adventurous the Inquisitor. And a different question on that. I feel like you, their sense of humor is delightfully sharp and cutting, and it comes through all of it so far. Well, you know, my website name is Whimsy Dark because my first editor said, I need you to come up with what your brand is. And I, I kind of couldn't at the time. I said, well, everything I do is on somewhere on the scale from whimsical to dark. It's like somewhere on uh, that spectrum. So I, I went with that. I can see that. Now, I how how did you get into the Star Wars franchise? <laughs> Well, I mean, I've been a Star Wars fan since before I kind of knew what Star Wars was. Like I had the Luke Skywalker sheets before I'd never seen Luke Skywalker in a movie. Right. Because uh, that's the way that the, the early 80s, late 70s worked. But yeah. once I got into writing, friends Chuck Windig and Kevin Hearn got to write Star Wars. I remember Chuck tweeted like, I want to write a Star Wars book. And Star Wars was like, great, write it right now. <laughs> and so I tweeted like, I want to write a Star Wars book. And somehow they did not show up on my doorstep. Um, I don't understand. I mean... You got you to gotta get your name out there, I guess. So I had my agent. Actually, the first thing I did, I was at a, I lived in Dahlonega, Georgia in a small mountain town at the time. And I was in the Walmart and I saw one cupcake on display that had a, uh, a Darth Vader ring kind of nestled in it. I could still eat gluten back then. So I bought the cupcake and I put it in the freezer and I was like, when I get a Star Wars book, I'm going to eat this. And I'm going to like do black magic with the Star Wars ring. Like it's going to be sitting there waiting. And they didn't call, they didn't call. And I had my agent send, you know, a, a Star Wars editor my books and tell them I was really interested. And I asked Kevin and Chuck and uh, uh, my friends, James S. A. Gorey to, to send in there, hey, if you need a girl riding Star Wars, here she is. And it didn't happen. And finally, I got just really angry. And I was like, I don't care, this isn't going to work. So I ate the cupcake in like two bites, like shoved it down my throat. And then uh, the next day, I got the invitation to write for Star Wars. That. You know, magic is black magic if it comes in a cupcake, I'm just saying. Though I still have the Darth Vader ring, and I'm just going to keep that around for good luck. So which came first, your Ventress the Inquisitor or the Obi-Wan series? Because in the way that I know you can write things and then there's a delay, did you? are you secretly the one who gave us Obi-Wan and you just blink twice if it's real? I can tell you that the Inquisitors were only active for a short period of time, but as Star Wars tends to do, they do like little groupings. So, you know, with what we learned about the Inquisitors in the Obi-Wan uh, TV show, um, with what's coming up with Acolyte, it kind of makes sense that they would want an Inquisitor book in there. Um, but my Inquisitor I'm writing, Iscat, is a new character. We've only seen her very briefly in Charles Soule's uh, Vader comics. Right. Uh, so we don't, we don't have that much information on, on her yet. So it's, it's more I get to flesh out a character that was, you know, kind of a throwaway in a comic book, and now we get to really use her to explore the Inquisitors. Oh, can't wait. Can't wait. Because I loved Tarkin. I sent Phasma to her friends. So I'm going to have to buy Ventress too. Well, the Ventress is, um, my Ventress story is just in, a, it's in the stories of Jedi and Sith. And right. that anthology that came out recently is my Ventress story. Um, and then Rise of the Red Blade, which will be out next July. Her name is Iskatakaris. Ah, excellent. Excellent. Well, 
the latest reason, and the reason I first jumped to you and said we have to have you on the show is you wrote a new book. I don't know if it's your very, very latest book because you are so beautifully prolific, but you have a lot of to say about the violence, a new book on the topic of writing, horror, thrillers. You have somehow managed to take a horrific topic that happens all the time that is global uh, violence against women, added a twist, a sousson of, I'm just saying in this one, I think the horror, the fantasy, it's fantasy, it's fantasy noir, right? You know, I've heard this book called everything from contemporary horror to domestic thriller to speculative fiction to literary fiction. So I've I, I'm just not real good at sticking to one genre. So it's whatever you call it. I'm sure. I mean, I wouldn't call it, you know, like a children's Amish love story or anything, but it's it's pretty much everything you said. I, I would say not Amish love story, but tell everybody about it a little bit. Uh, so the violence is about uh, three generations of women, Chelsea, her daughter, Ella, and her mother, Patricia, who are all caught in different parts of the cycle of domestic violence. Chelsea is swiftly realizing that her husband and her marriage are something that she basically got tricked into and that she's stuck, you know, she's one of those wives who is suffering financial abuse, who has had all of her friendships run away, who isn't allowed to have hobbies or or to go out really, and that she's miserable and her husband is growing increasingly violent. Her teenage daughter is witnessing this and also beginning to see echoes of that violence in her boyfriend. And then Chelsea's mother has taken part in the domestic violence such that she is, you know, a trophy wife to a rich man who treats her very poorly. And she has basically traded her life away for money. So we have all of these things going on. And then a pandemic hits that causes people to break out in random acts of violence. So it opens in a Costco where someone is looking at a jar of mayonnaise and they drop it, pick up a bottle of Thousand Island dressing and just beat the nearest person to death with it, put down the dressing and keep walking. I mean, that could totally happen at any Costco in San Jose, California. That's just... That's the but only the walking place. away having forgotten is the different part there. <laughs> so when you have the violence, you forget what you've done. Um, I can, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. And and like I said, that brings an interesting, you know, is it supernatural? Is it not supernatural? What an interest, and does it matter? Um, I mean, it's, so I pitched this and sold it before COVID hit. <laughs> and, I, and I was writing it during the various waves of COVID. So it was definitely a learning experience. But it all came from the idea of, um, I was thinking about the domestic violence that I grew up with and what I was seeing around me. And it all came down to uh, a woman in this situation cannot fight back. And if she does, she's going to get prosecuted. Um, in general, like women who fight back against their domestic abusers can get, you know, they they can have uh, be sent to jail for killing them or, or go to court for hurting them. Um, it's not a system that is made to help women, really. And I was like, you got to what if there was a way that a woman could actually fight back and not be held accountable for it? And, you know, then you look at COVID and it's like, well, at first we didn't know what caused it, how to know who had it. There was this kind of crazy gray area where we just didn't know. And you're going, well, if a, if a pandemic like this hit, this pandemic of violence, it'd be a while before they could figure out what was causing it or who had it. And if, if you killed somebody in that period of time, they can't really prosecute you. You're like, oh, I had the violence. It wasn't my fault. I beat him to death. So it seemed like a nice little way out. And it was like, oh, that, that would be nice for women. A woman could really use that to get out of a bad situation. Well, you know, a demon hand. I, I could, nothing I could do. There's, it was amazing when you look back through history, there's like poisoners in general, because they used to, there's a list if you look at how people kill each other, especially spouses, women do often through history have chosen poison as a method because 
maybe they are weaker, maybe they haven't felt as strong, you know, I can't, maybe it's not a baseball bat that's not your milieu, but if you still wanted to off that troublesome husband who was abusive, there was like all the way through back in history <laughs> of... Oh, yeah, it's funny, they, you know, they make a big deal of like, oh, there's a poison, a poison garden in England and you walk in and every plant is poisonous. You're like, man, I can go to my Lowe's right here in suburban Atlanta and buy three or four poisonous plants today. Like oh, yeah. they're just not hard to come by. When I was writing this book, I had oleander in my yard. I had a little bit of foxglove. I hear yeah, foxglove made digitalis. So it's it like, oh, hard. It's, yeah, yeah. Sorry, John, we don't mean to make you feel nervous about us here. But yes, there's so many really cool, easy ways to kill people. But untraceable easy ways to get caught. Oh, it's very traceable. <laughs> but you bring up an interesting thing that in a lot of ways, people are used to talking about, we finally mainstream being able to talk about physical violence. We're just starting to get a little bit deeper in talking publicly, social media, God bless it, about verbal and emotional violence. Financial abuse is something that is not often talked about and people financial abuse happens for the elderly for children for spouses there's a lot out there and i love that you mentioned that too yeah you know the when you're when you're building a book like this you want to kind of take away every avenue for this character so that the course of action that she takes which is a very violent and final one uh you know is believable to the audience and so that's that's part of it. This is also how I grew up. My mother wasn't allowed to have money. She got in really big trouble once for taking me out to lunch twice in one week when I was pregnant because she was only allowed uh, and budgeted to take me out once a week. There was plenty of money. She just wasn't allowed to have it. So she got in huge trouble for that. Right. So I've kind of witnessed firsthand what it's like when, you know, whether or not the woman is bringing money home, if she has access to it, because if you have access to the money, then then you can leave if you need to. But if you don't have access to the money, you're kind of stuck there. Exactly. And then with some of the recent laws changing that says, well, a, a pregnant woman can't get a divorce. So how if you don't want your wife to divorce you, what do you do? Oh, yeah. God, that's disgusting. Yeah. And it's but I at least appreciate that you use unflinchingly these topics in a book that it can appeal to the thriller audience. It can appeal a little bit to the, oh, I don't know. Z train is, are they zombies? Are they strange? Is this just they, something that happened? If you don't specify, it, it can be across many different genres and I think has a bigger appeal thereby. And that brings the message out more that people should recognize when they're in abusive relationships. And let's face it, a lot of people don't. The slide is very subtle. Well, you know, part of the reason I wanted to write the abuse in the exact way it was featured in this book is because that's how my father kept control over us. And uh, nobody really believed it when we told people, if you, if you strangle people, there's no evidence if you do it correctly. There are no bruises if you, uh, if you do a blood choke correctly. So you can't, there's no way to prove that this occurred. So I tried very early in my career to write this into a book. And my agent said, you know, this, this isn't believable. This is not how abuse happens. And I was like, <laughs> well, wait, was your agent a girl or a guy? I mean, just check. She was a woman. Okay, and she's no longer my agent. She did great things for my my career. I'm super grateful. But in this one instance, uh, she told me this is this is not how abuse happens. And I was like, no, it is. Like I lived it. And she was like, well, then it's not written in a way that makes me make that jump with you. And uh, I remember thinking, okay, well, one day I'm going to force you to take that jump with me. No, <laughs> no, that's that jump. that's an excellent point. The to to write it in such a way that people understand that 
you're not just making shit up that this legitimately happens. I think it's, it's like we were talking on another episode about how cop dramas and because we have watched so many cop procedural dramas, the assumption is that the person investigating on the scene of the crime does everything correctly. Yeah. I mean, even knows, but let's don't don't laugh too here that the police knows every law that applies to what's going on in front of them. And we're all kind of laughing and sighing to ourselves, but that is what television is media is created. So we are having to start seeing now, I, at least in literature, we're starting to see a little bit more of the, yeah, you know, the cop was 18 straight out of, you know, didn't know one thing or another. But my friend who drove a, an ambulance said, you know, this is the guy that two years ago, I was at a site where his girlfriend died, similarly fallen down a staircase. And this is the second time this man has lived with a woman who's come to a violent accident. Maybe you could do something. That's another thing in this book is that, you know, um, a lot of women don't feel comfortable going to the cops for reasons like that. Uh, when this was happening to me in my youth, my grandmother worked for the police station and no one would have believed it because her son was a good hometown boy. Uh, which was another one of our problems is that no one that we told believed us because he's such a nice man and we all know him and he works so hard for charity and is so generous. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of what I lived in this book. I think that's important because when we talk about stories of life, there are some that go across, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say every gender identity, ethnicity, religion, culture across the planet is, is violence towards women. And so by writing it, I think books like yours are important because this says, hey, do you see anything you recognize here? Have, does this resonate, you know, is there, has there been somebody who told you a story and now you can look at it and say, you're kind of being abused and maybe we'll have more outreach, more help. What do you want to see come out of this? Yeah, I um, especially in the last few years, I've been exploring a lot of these issues, uh, you know, almost sprinkling a different one into different books. Um, I have two middle grade books that have come out, uh, mine and Camp Scare, that each have things I dealt with as a kid that I felt like I was all alone in and that no one really understood what I was experiencing. So putting those into books, especially for kids, you know, I'm hoping that it will say to a kid, like, if this is happening to you, like, you're, you're not alone. And, uh, you know, especially in regards to bullying with Camp Scare, it Adults these days seem to think that they're doing more about bullying and, and it's still happening and no one is stopping it any more than they did in the 80s. It is not, you know, a six foot tall 12 year old who punches you for your lunch money. You know, it's a girl who looks at you and smiles and says, oh, my gosh, I love your skirt. And then turns around and giggles with her friends and takes a picture on her Snapchat. And like, it's just it hasn't gotten any better. Yeah. And I think that's what's important is to point out the different kinds of how bullying can represent in different ways that are not what people have top in mind. I mean, they're imagining the the bully, the stealing, the punching. They're not imagining the, as we say, the emotional abuse, the verbal yeah. abuse, the, <laughs> I suppose it isn't really financial until they take your lunch money, but <laughs> still. Yeah. And is it, do you think there's any connection here that you're saying that if, if you recognize that your grandmother was abused and your mother was abused, does that make you feel like you might have been more easily abused or did that make you a little bit angrier to stand up and say, no, it ends here? I mean, the, the hardest thing looking back to come to terms with is that, you know, 
I think if you're a kid who's grown up with a, an abusive father is to not understand why your mom wouldn't leave. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, as you get older, you begin to understand the financial abuse and the way that uh, these people systematically wear you down, take away all of your systems of support to where you feel like you know, have nowhere else to go. So, I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, I mean, I still remember going to see it there. My mom and I, um, I walked out one night after I saw my, my dad hit my mom for the first time we walked out. I left and my mom followed me and we drove to a friend of hers's house and we were away from my dad for a couple of months. Um, and I still remember going to see a therapist and she was like, you understand that this is abuse, right? And I was like, no, it's not. I mean, it's not, a, he doesn't do it that much. And like, I was trying to kind of explain it to her that it wasn't abuse. And she was looking at me like, oh, you poor dumb bastard. <laughs> like he <laughs> yeah. got you, he got you so hard. And it definitely takes a little, a, a twist uh, when you've been taught that this is normal when it's all you've ever known um, to realize that not only is it not normal and that you don't deserve it and that you have done nothing to deserve it, but that they- Oh, they, you deserve better they, though. You yeah. nowhere to go and, and you do have places to go. Yeah. No, that's powerful. Does, does this take it anywhere of saying that, I mean, if I had the violence and suddenly, let's say I was in that Costco because I feel like I've been in that Costco, and it suddenly happens. Is there an opportunity to become a very careful serial killer and say, oh, well, I, nothing to be done. It was the violence. <laughs> oh, 100%. And I, I, I mean, it's. I mean, it's I can like think of that, a list of people that just them, they need killing out there in the world. So yeah. always with the Mikado. Yeah. But this is also one of those things that the second people become aware of it, they, you know, they, they immediately go into hiding in their homes and kind of people. The whole landscape changes. I've heard the book called Predystopian because it kind of begins a new little dystopia. So, you know, I think there's definitely a possibility for that, except that they'd be like, well, how did you end up in the locked house of this person that you, you know, had a very public, ugly breakup with? Like, it's hard to have excuses when everyone is hanging out in their house. Yeah, it's still kind of a Johnny Cochran defense, though. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, the first the first couple of months, there's a lot of leeway to get into trouble. Yeah, yeah. So we're not getting in trouble. I think it's fun. Well, what what are you working on next? Is there going to be a sequel to it or is this a standalone? Thus far, it's a standalone. Um, it's a world that I think there are lots of cool stories that could be told in if it, you know, you always hope that a book strikes that lucky chord where Michelle Obama picks it up, where it becomes a movie, and then people are just clamoring for more stories. So there will always be more stories. But for now, it's a standalone. Uh, right now, I'm writing my Star Wars book, uh, Rise of the Red Blade. That will be out in July of next year. Um, I have a young adult romance, a magical romance that'll be out next year called Midnight at the Houdini that's kind of inspired by uh, Sleep No More. It is the least violent book I've ever written, <laughs> which is kind of fun for me to write a book with no like absolutely horrible violence in it. You don't kill off any kids whatsoever? Not a single child dies in this book. Wow. Oh, so it's your cozy one. Very new. It was my, 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 uh, my pandemic book that I wrote kind of like in the that period of time where you're like, well, I guess I live inside my house and never leave now. And I just wanted a sweet little escape to play with. Oh, that's yeah. beautiful. I, I, I only just discovered cozy fantasy recently with um, what was legends and lattes. So I would, I would like this idea of the cozy fantasy genre taking off more. So yeah, please. It's kind of nice to think about, you know, you get, I think uh, you get kind of like Marvel fatigue of it's the end of the world. The aliens are going to blow up the world and then it's going to implode in time space. And you're like, well, Maybe it could be smaller stakes for right now. 
Is it though? Yeah. <laughs> um, see, I also have a book that's coming out. Um, I've written it, but I don't think it's out till 2024. That is kind of more in the line of the violence. Uh, thus far, it's called Fever of the Spirits. And it's about an art retreat set on the bones of an asylum where rich men used to send their inconvenient wives and mistresses when they misbehaved. Uh, so that's a haunted asylum ghost artist retreat story. Wait, wait, that could be real. Wasn't there like this couple's therapy place where you would go with your husband if you wanted to come home a widow? Uh, sure, in the Holy City and the Santa Cruz Mountains, there were multiples of those. Yeah. <laughs> wait a second, this is historical fiction you're writing here. Well, no, I mean, this is, uh, it's more about, um, there's some great books about the asylums where, you know, if a woman went against her husband and said, you know, no, you can't rape me and send my children away. And no, I refuse to do all this. He'd be like, well, you're crazy. Time to take you to the doctor. Yep. You know, they, they would just get rid of these women who dared to be equals. Uh, and then perfectly sane women ended up in insane asylums, uh, treated as badly as people with, you know, significant issues. Yeah. A little bit creepy. Little yep. bit creepy. What advice would you have to somebody starting out in the world to saying that, Maybe they've written their first story. They want to get out there and they've like, they're chock full of stories. Where do they start? Because you are clearly chock full of universes. Oh, yeah. I, I, I think that writing is probably my, uh, I've recently learned I have ADHD and possibly autism. And this is definitely my, uh, my favorite fixation. Um, it's beautiful. Cannot, cannot not be writing or making up stories, apparently. Um, I mean, if you haven't written the story yet, um, I, the, my biggest recommendation for people that are kind of struggling with how to write a book or how to get started is the book Story Genius by Lisa Crone. Um, it is, and you know, we also always recommend uh, On Writing by Stephen King and Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott, but for strictly a book that acts as a workbook to walk you through taking a little idea seed and fleshing it out into an actual plot with a character arc, Story Genius is just, it's, it's a game changer. It literally changed how I write books. I used to just kind of pants the books and write them as I went. And uh, every year, it seemed like I would write a complete book, you know, 80,000 plus words that either my agent and I couldn't agree on, or it went to editors and it didn't sell. And it was just like a throwaway book every year, you know, 100,000 100, words that nobody wanted. And that hadn't happened to me since I started reading Story Genius, because it does better at teaching you how to outline in a way that, you know, pulls the book together. So that's, that's my biggest one. Um, if I can see it. I, I got a lot out of Rachel Aaron's 2000 to 10,000 also. And I think it sounds very similar of the, you know, you, you've got all the words in there and ideas, a little bit of organization up front and they will fly faster. Uh, well, this one is more about, um, you know, you don't have to have yet any part of the plot or story. It's more about um, tying in the character arc with the plot and letting the character's motivation drive the, the story. Oh, okay, um, nice. And then if you are a person who thinks that you might plot better with post-it notes, save the cat. Um, I'd like somebody or other. Snyder, maybe? Um, it's four screenplays, but it basically breaks down a story into, uh, you know, 40 points, um, which I found pretty helpful sometimes when I can't quite get the, the, the plot rolling. That one helps a lot, too. Nice. Um, save the cat. Save the cat book, story cards. We'll have a link. Okay. Um, and then if you, you know, if you have a book... You know, especially if you're doing NaNoWriMo or whatever, um, just remember not to send that out to agents on December 1st. They will not take it seriously. You definitely want to uh, spend a couple of weeks editing that, maybe getting some feedback from beta readers or critique partners and making sure that you're turning in the nicest draft you can, even if you have to wait until mid-January. 
but I, yeah, I, I, a long time ago. Right. Thought- it seems that it, it, you know, at the end of the year, everybody's doing their holidays anywhere and planning there. And I'm not sure that's a good time for something new. Yeah. It's, I think that's the time when they get the most, the most, uh, punk <laughs> queries that are not going to go anywhere. <laughs> Granted, I myself have queried in December, so I can't say, you know, that I haven't tried it. Um, but definitely, I don't think I got any good answers until February. Yeah. And a final check-in, you've even written comics. And I love comics. Like, <laughs> you've touched Rick and Morty, you've touched Adventure Time, you've touched other pieces. That's I, like I said, I, you're, I don't want to blame the ADHD. I think it's so cool that you've gone in so many different directions. And how do you feel that they've been different when you're writing a short story versus a novel is flooding out of you versus a small pastiche, as it were? I mean, I, I love them all. And, and they're all, you know, when I get an idea, I can kind of start to feel now whether it needs to be told graphically. I don't think that uh, the stories from, you know, Sparrowhawk, or or Star Pig or Lady Castle could could have been really told as uh, as novels as well as they could as comics, so it's a different way of thinking. And I definitely am super grateful to my first editor in comics, Chris Rosa, who kind of took my first script and was like, "Oh, honey, <laughs> oh, honey, let's have a little talk. <laughs> Here are some resources to check out." Because I think my first script was like, you know, ninety pages or something egregious, uh, and every every page had like 10 times as many words as it could have. So it's a definite change of pace. Um, and then, you know, short stories versus novellas, that sort of thing. It all has to do with, I think, practice. I don't think that that's a thing that most people start out knowing how big a story needs to be or being able to say, okay, this will be only 5,000 words and then not have it blowed out to 8,000. So, um, so much of that, you know, much like finding your voice uh, yeah. is, is going to be a case of experience and you just have to kind of figure it out for yourself. I mean, it reminds me of when my grandmother was teaching me how to cook and I was like, how much salt do I put in? And she was like, enough. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. What is enough salt? And and then how does it too much? So I suppose there's there's good and failures. And yeah, you're going to ruin some grits before you get that right. But that's do, okay. But then you say, thank God for really good editors and beta readers oh, yes. that can say, what was that? Oh, honey. Oh, yes. But, um, you know, comics, it's very hard to I can tell someone how to get published, um, whether they actually get published will depend on uh, their tenacity and, and their ability to level up their skill set. But I cannot tell anyone how to write comics. It is I always say it's like a fire slug. Every one of us burns a trail behind us and you cannot follow it because it's there is no one way to get into writing comics. They say the best way these days is to start at Webtoons or self-publishing your own stuff. Um I got to write comics because I asked on Twitter and someone let me write a six page story for free for an anthology. And thus I was at Gen Con one year and they still had the writer symposium. And uh, a guy ran up to me and was like, hey, you write comics. Can you be on this panel about women writing comics? And I was like, I mean, I've, I've written exactly 12 pages of comics, but I can do it. <laughs> and, and they were like, well, it's an emergency, get up there. So I got on the panel and it was absolute crap show. Uh, the moderator was super misogynistic, very insulting, uh, and everyone on on the panel was just, it was like trying to fight a bull, basically. he His first words were, okay, let's get something straight. This is not about women writing comics. It's about men writing comics for women. It was like the first line of the panel. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> so 
no, there was a writer for the Mary Sue in the uh, in the audience, and she she ripped them apart in a two part article. And I said, while I was on the panel, the guy was like, well, what do you have to know? Like you, you haven't written anything. And I was like, well, yeah, I'd love to, but it's really hard to break into comics as a woman, but I'd love to write comics. But so far, this is all I have. Thanks for pointing it out. And that day I got an email from an editor at Boom who was like, I heard you wanted to write comics. Nice. And, so, and the advantage is that you do have a name at this point. And uh, we yeah. have a couple names, Lila and Delilah. <laughs> Not yeah. coincidental, I'm sure. I and, just, I'll answer to either one of those in public. It's a very lazy pen name. No, it's, it's very clever. <laughs> How did you get Bowen, though? I mean, I have to know before I go. It's an old family name. Oh, is it? Yeah, Neat. but it just, it sounds, it sounds, you know, it sounds like a cowboy. <laughs> Bowen. Oh, yeah, I like that. Lila Bowen. I can see her in a Stetson. Yeah. Yeah, maybe a flannel shirt striding along, boots. Yeah. I've got all the boots. Beautiful. All right. Well, I will put links to Delilah's pages and other topics we mentioned on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. Thank you so much for visiting with us today. This has been fantastic. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. <laughs> well, we look forward to everybody going out there and getting a copy of The Violence. Um, if you know somebody you need to send it to, let's face it, it might be important. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's a hard read. My husband can't read it, but um, it's meant to be ultimately cathartic and hopeful. So even if it sounds very dire, in the end, you should be cheering for these people. Hope matters a lot, and hope comes in many different flavors and colors. So it's important to get it out there. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineers and backup web spiders are Dave Welsh and John Schmidt. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with the Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on ManyHatsMusic.com. Our podcast sponsors are Jackal's Designs, The Bean Scene, Arm Street, and wherever you really get a good cup of coffee. And hey, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>